Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Has any of you ever attempted walking on water? Hands up if you have, if you're prepared to admit that you've ever tried it. A few, a few. Yeah? Well, I tried it once, not quite walking on water, walking the lily pads on my grandmother's pond when I was about four years old. It didn't end well. There's a kind of gunge of decomposed vegetation that you can get at the bottom of the pond. My grandmother had a lovely name for this, she called it Hoogie Hickey Hacky. And suffice to say that I was covered in Hoogie Hickey Hacky and required a change of clothes very promptly. Well, this morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, believe it or not, we are going to see a live demonstration of walking on water. Do I have any volunteers? Yep, on board. Any other volunteers? Anybody feeling brave? Just the one? Okay. Right, what I'm going to do is uncover this. It may not be what you might, might think. Surprisingly, four people didn't come forward. You have little faith. It may not be what you expect. Now, what do you see in there? Some books. Super high capacity, really, really water repellent. However, 
I don't think when Jesus was walking on the water, he was using super hydrophobic sandals. Nor does it seem likely to fill the Sea of Galilee with cornflower. Exactly how Jesus did it, I don't think any of us can really say. But what's the more interesting question is why? Why did Jesus walk on water at this particular time? To prove that he was a Messiah. Well done. Well done. We'll step back a little bit. We'll step back a little bit. The context in which this story falls is right after the feeding of the five thousand by the shores of Galilee. And Jesus has urged the disciples to get into the boat. And he's gone up on the mountain to pray in the meantime. Why is he urged them to go into the boat to get away? Why is he urged them to get into the boat? In John's Gospel, the parallel account in John chapter 6, we hear how they wanted to make him, the people crowds wanted to make him a king by force. And Jesus doesn't want this, he always wants the disciples to get out of business. But there's also something else in the parallel account in Mark chapter 6. There we read the disciples still didn't understand about the loaves and the fishes. They still didn't really recognize, yes, that Jesus was the Messiah, well done. They didn't recognize him as the Son of God, as God incarnate, God in human form. They didn't get it. Now Jesus could have calmed the storm. He had done that earlier. You can read that in Matthew chapter 8. You can read that also in Mark chapter 4, where Jesus had calmed the storm. And towards the end of that account, Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, we read that the men all marveled and said, Who is this? That even, what sort of man is this? What sort of man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? But they still didn't really get it. They recognized there was something special here, but didn't fully understand it. What about Peter? What about Peter's faith? Do you think he had strong faith or weak faith? Hands up if you think he was strong. Okay, hands up if you think he was weak. So the majority seems to be that it's fairly strong faith. I mean, let's face it, not many people came forward to attempt water walking attempt here. A number of years ago, um, about 2001 or so, there was uh, an American psychologist and pastor, John Orker, who wrote a book famously called If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. Many people have repeated this message before. The basic thrust is Peter did demonstrate a considerable amount of faith in stepping out of the boat to begin with. There were 11 disciples who remained in the boat who didn't even attempt to go out of the but what was going through Peter's head? Why did he not say to Jesus, what please can the storm as he had done before? And St. Paul didn't try to walk on water like Peter when they were approaching the shores of water and he got involved in a shipwreck. That obviously would be an easy escape. St. Paul was able to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ, didn't attempt to repeat this. So Paul was going through Peter's head. We can't really answer this definitively, this a definite answer. But we can possibly probe possible reasons why. 
Maybe he was reflecting on the verses, or at least saw the truth of the verses later on, like uh, Psalm 40, which begins, You pick me up out of the miry clay, you pick me up out of the pit of despair, out of the miry clay, and put my feet on the rock, establishing my steps. Maybe this was what he had in mind. And which later goes on in verse 4 to say, He, happy is he, happy is he, trust in the Lord. Or maybe it was something like Isaiah chapter 43, which begins, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Though you walk through the waters, they will not overwhelm you. Though you walk through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. Maybe this is some sort of thing that Peter might have had in his mind. He doesn't say to Jesus, Can this He says instead, Command me to come out and walk on the water. But the miracle is not just Jesus' control over the elements, but also his authority over people. Nevertheless, it can still give us free will. Peter asks Jesus to command him to be able to walk on the water, and he walks to the Word, the Word come towards the Word of God, Jesus Christ himself. Even though Peter's faith, as we see later, does falter, Peter walks to the Word, even the faltering faith, even though his feet fail him. Jesus calls Peter, Oligopiste, you of little faith. Now you can read in Luke chapter 17, how the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith, and Jesus says to them, if you have faith like a grain of mustard, you could say that's mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and will obey you. Luke chapter 17, verse 6. Only a small amount of faith is obviously capable of great things. From our perspective, Peter has great faith. From God's perspective, it's very little. But even a little is capable of a lot. Peter's faith may not be that strong from Jesus' point of view, but then what's what sort of tone of voice do we hear when Jesus is saying this? Do we imagine Jesus scolding Peter, saying, You are little faith, with real frustration, or perhaps in the reading that we had earlier, where Jesus gently tried him with a hint of encouragement, You are little faith. Why did you doubt? I imagine Jesus is probably far more encouraging. And the other thing is, Peter, although he is beginning to doubt, still cries out immediately to Jesus. Cries out immediately to save me. I think one of the messages of this particular passage isn't that we're going to be able to walk on water necessarily ourselves. Otherwise, as I say, St. Paul would have done so. But rather, perhaps, that we try to be as close to Jesus as possible so that when crises happen, as in Peter's case, we are able to call out to him. There is a contrast between Oligopiste, in Peter's case, being of little faith, and what we read at the end of chapter 13, the preceding chapter, when Jesus refuses to perform miracles. We read in verse 58, he didn't perform any mighty works there because of their lack of faith, because of their unbelief, a it's a lack, a complete lack, whereas Peter at least had a little, and a little is capable of a lot.
There's a Spanish priest, Jose Cadona, who focuses on this particular word. Three Hebrew letters. Anam, the Hebrew word for faith. It also means to support, to uphold, to believe. It's closely related to the word Amen. You can see it's the same letters as that, so it's making the difference. Anam. This is what we see in Peter. What's supporting it in the world? Water doesn't normally support us. We break the surface tension very, very easily. We don't have very high food feet or air bottles or anything like that. It is purely Peter's trust, his aman, in Jesus. As Pagoda writes, to believe is to live supported by God. And when Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray himself, do we imagine that he's abandoning his disciples? No, I don't think so. John Calvin, commenting on this, says it is probable that the Son of God, being fully aware of the tempest that was coming on, didn't neglect his disciples in prayer. But nevertheless, he did wonder why he didn't pray for the storm to stop to begin with or anything else like that. We see, I think, the answer to this at the very end of the passage we just heard. Their disciples' reaction is different. They don't merely express amazement, neither, as we read in Mark chapter 4, verse 13 to 41, are they filled with great fear. Yes, they're fear full of fear to begin with when they see Jesus, because they don't recognize him. They say, the Greek phantasma esti, it's a ghost. But in the end, they are worshipping him. There is a transformation that takes place on the basis of Peter's example as well. And now let's turn and look at, at, at our passages in the Old Testament. Elijah. You may not be able to see this very well just because of the sunlight. Elijah is also somebody who's having a crisis of faith. It's not a, a very immediate, sharp crisis like in Peter's case. Elijah's actually sinking into depression. He says, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life. I am no better than my father's. In Elijah's case, it's not so much lack of faith in God as lack of faith in his ability to serve God. That after the showdown on Mount Carmel, after proving to the Israelites that God is God, nevertheless he's really fear for his life from Jezebel. So what does God do? The Welsh pastor, Selwyn Hughes, comes to the way God responds to Elijah. is perhaps a good model of how you might respond to somebody who's facing depression. Whether a crisis of faith has developed into a severe depression. What he does, first of all, is to make sure that he's well fed and rested. Then afterwards, it's only after he's well fed and rested that God begins to ask him questions. What are you doing here? And then after that, God listens to Elijah, he listens to his complaints. But also importantly, he gives him a job to do. He doesn't leave him wallowing in despair, he gives him a commission. Elijah is going to appoint a successor, Elisha. He's also going to um, proclaim new people as kings. And he goes on 
faithful to the word, walking to the word despite faltering faith, to criticize Ahab for his conspiracy and murder of Nabal, to proclaim against his son as well. He goes on being faithful to the word. We'll turn now to the psalm that we sang at the beginning of the service. Psalm 85 is one of those psalms in which we don't have the verses printed in the order service. The verse numbers for this particular psalm vary a little bit depending on which edition they're looking at. Most English translations have just verses 1 to 13. The Hebrew and the Masoretic text, the title is taken as verse 1 of every 14 verses, and some other translations follow that pattern. And the French translation fits in the immediate likewise, it's 1 to 14. So the second stanza, the second stanza that you'll have in your order service, which in most English translations will be verses 4 to 7, but in the, the Hebrew it's 5 to 8, it's where it gets a little confusing. This is a cry of despair. People who feel that God's pretty angry at them. Restore us, the God of our salvation. And cause your anger that is against us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? It's expressing a real crisis of faith as well. And yet, and yet, the psalm continues. Starting at the very last stanza, which is verse 10 or 11, depending on the, the, the translation. Love and truth are met together, righteousness and peace they kiss. Now the Hebrew for this particular which so humor me while I, I sort of go through this a little, little bit more detail. The word that we have translated in the metrical version there is love, chesed. It's much richer than that. It's God's covenant loving kindness. Chesed, they emit truth and faithfulness. Truth, in Hebrew, we have an adverb and a noun. It's something that's very active. We often think of truth as being very static. Something we've inherited from Greek philosophers. And in Hebrew, truth is active. Chesed, they emit. God's covenant loving kindness and faithful truth. These are met together. These are met together. And likewise, God's justice or righteousness, Sedek, the Shalom, and peace, Meshachah, these are kissing. Something very, very intimate. On Monday night, I had the privilege of being with Rabbi Singer, as he was looking at the theme of peace through the Psalms. And here we should see how justice and peace are intimately connected to each other. Sometimes you hear it said that no, there can be no true justice, no lasting justice, or no true peace, no true peace without also being lasting justice. And here we see that righteousness, justice, tzedek, and peace are kissing each other. Now, who is this talking about? Love and truth are met together, righteousness and peace they kiss. Truth shall spring forth from the earth, and justice looks down from the skies. Heaven and earth meeting each other. Many commentators, including the 17th century English Presbyterian uh, minister Matthew Henry, comments that this must be relating to Jesus Christ. 
It's only in the incarnation that we see a fulfillment of what this psalm is describing. So the psalmist in a way is also with faltering faith, walking to the words. Walking to the word of God. To close on a personal note, it is often difficult when our faith comes into question when we doubt, and all of us have doubts at some time. But one of the things I found helpful is to treat doubt as an opportunity to learn, to deepen faith. As even in Peter's case, as in the case of all the disciples. It's possible to do two things with that. One is to use it to run away from God, and our faith becomes pitiful. What I found more helpful myself is to turn over my doubts to God in the way that many of the psalmists do. The psalms are rich, as in the case of Psalm 85, of people pouring out their hearts honestly to God, as Elijah also did. And it's when we turn over our doubts to God, trying to learn at the same time, earnestly seeking answers to our questions, that I then think, certainly in my experience, that's where faith has been deepened. Let us pray. Loving Father, guide us by your Spirit whenever we have questions and doubts, whenever we are a little thing. Help us to stay close to you as Peter did, so that we are ready to cry out and be rescued by you, in whatever form that may take. Help us to be close to you, Help us to be honest with you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, Let us close by singing, Shine, Jesus, Shine. 